Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth to this podcast. And for more information about our work, go to johnwarrenmedia.com. Our guest today is a very special guest, my good friend Hank Hanegraaff. Hank is president and chairman of the board of the North Carolina-based Christian Research Institute. He's also host of the nationally syndicated Bible Answer Man broadcast, as well as the Hank Unplugged podcast. He's widely regarded as one of the world's leading Christian authors and apologists. Through his live call-in radio broadcast, Hank equips Christians to mine the Bible for all its wealth and answers questions on the basis of careful research and sound reasoning. And through the Hank Unplugged podcast, he interviews today's most significant Christian leaders, apologists, and thinkers. He's the author of more than 20 books with more than a million copies in print, and 2019 saw the release of his book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. He's a regular contributor to the award-winning Christian Research Journal and an articulate communicator on the pressing issues of our day. Having spoken in leading churches, conferences, and on college campuses throughout the world, Hank and his wife, Kathy, live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and their parents to 12 children. Hank, welcome. Thank you, John. Appreciate that long and uh, very kind introduction. Well, I, I didn't think the man, the myth, the legend would be would be enough. <laughs> well, I really do appreciate you being here, and I... You know, as well known as you are for uh, the Bible Answer Man broadcast, and I and I should say that you know my wife and I listened to, as you know, your broadcast thirty uh, some years ago, and would drive home from work from she from the hospital, me from the bank, and would compare notes, and that was part of a process that uh, where God began to work in in our lives to. Uh, to get us to probe more deeply, and and it's amazing how we would we would say, "Can you believe that guy from California said this today?" But I, I know you're well known for for that, for your books that you've written and other aspects of your work. But I think our listeners would enjoy getting to know you a bit, and I'm wondering if you would start by just kind of giving us an overview of the life of Hank Hanegraaff, if you would. Yeah, I can do that. First of all, let me say that I love the. Uh the name of your podcast, Relentless Truth. I mean, we live in a post-truth culture, a culture in which truth is so obscure and falsehood so established that unless you love the truth, you cannot know it. Mm, so to right. have a podcast that is committed to relentless truth, to to exploding the mythology that envelops so much of our culture and is leading to the demise of Western civilization, I think, is transcendently important. In terms of my own life, I was born in the Netherlands, so I'm Dutch. Dutch is my first language. We immigrated when I was three to Canada, and then when I was 14 to the United States. And I I suppose 
most of my early life, as I think back on it, is characterized by questions. I was constantly asking questions. And one of the things I remember, John, the most is not receiving satisfactory answers to my questions. Mm. And as a result of that, I actually walked away from the Christian faith. I grew up in the Christian faith. I walked away from the Christian faith. And for all intents and purposes, I became a practical atheist. Uh, Not an atheist in the truest sense of the word, but a practical atheist. Someone who was practicing uh, the tenets of atheism, who was living as though there is no God. Mm. Hank, let, yeah. me, let me ask you this, because in, in my experience with high school young people, we encountered this and we're concerned about that. I didn't remember that about your story, but roughly what age were you when you went through that period? Well, it started when I was age 14. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that was in 1964. And, you know, there's so many things that were happening at that time. You know, you had the, around that period of time, you had the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Uh, You had the Beatles who were questioning their Christian faith, and all of that led to questions that I would ask my teachers, my pastor, and my parents, and when I didn't get satisfactory answers, my assumption was there are no satisfactory answers. And that led me to uh, leaving the Christian faith for quite a long period of time, actually until I was 29. And when I was 29 years of age, three people who had intended to knock on my neighbor's door, knocked on my door. And uh, they, in a sort of a a halting, stumbling fashion, began to communicate the gospel to me. Well, I'd come out of a Christian background, so I'd ask them questions that would stump them. And they, in a very modest way, just said, look, uh, we we don't know the answer to that question, but we, we are having a seminar at our church next Saturday on the issue of origins. And um, anyway, I ended up going to that seminar, and that started my trek back into Christianity, because what I say now, John, I'm sure you've heard me say this many times, how one views their origins ultimately will determine how they live their life. If you believe that you're a function of random chance, that you arose from the primordial slime, you're going to live your life by a different standard than if you know you're created in the image of God and thus accountable to him. That's exactly right. So this matter of origins has become for me the foundational issue on which all of truth rests, the fact that God created the universe. And this is a self-evident truth. In other words, if you look at the Old Testament, King David, the quintessential king of Israel, said, that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they proclaim knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their words go out to the ends of the earth. In other words, if you look at the night sky, you know there has to be a creator. Design presupposes a designer. That's right. But the Apostle Paul in the New Testament said much the same. He said, God's eternal power, divine nature, clearly seen through what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So we have the light of creation, and we can either suppress that light in unrighteousness, or we can we can submit our lives to it and then find true joy and happiness. Mm, that's right. That's exactly right. Well, and tell me from there, Hank, what 
how did you, how, how did, I don't know the genesis of your ministry and I know it's multifaceted and that's a, that requires a long answer, but, but from, from that point in your life, what, what, what transpired to prompt you to employ yourself in this, in this apologetics work that you do so well? Yeah. Well, one of the first things that I did as a new Christian is I, I learned how to communicate the gospel. And I, I learned that through a program at a Presbyterian church, Coleridge Ridge Presbyterian in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, yep. which was right. I, I lived right on the staple, actually, of the church. And so I went to that church, and that's where I heard that, that message on origins as well, where it was actually sort of a, a debate. But I, in that process of learning to share my faith, learned it not just academically, but experientially, because in the program that was popular at that time called Evangelism Explosion, you would not only learn in classroom, but you'd also go out in the highways and the byways, and you would take what you were learning, and you would put it into practice. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I found out through that process that people were really hungry for answers. Uh, eventually, uh, Walter Martin, who's the president of and, and founder of the Christian Research Institute, uh, wanted me to take my my prowess in memorization and apply that to learning how the cults deviated from the historic Christian faith, make that memorable for people. And uh, eventually, in spending a lot of time with him and working with him on projects, he asked me to become president of the Christian Research Institute. And not long after that, he died. So then there was not a whole lot of choice except to pick up the mantle and move forward. And, and approximately what year was that, roughly? Yeah, it was 1988, the end of 1988, beginning of 1989, that I became president of the Christian Research Institute. And, you know, one of the feature programs in ministry outreach for the Christian Research Institute is a, a broadcast called the Bible Instrument Broadcast. And on that broadcast, you just answer people's questions. So right. uh, essentially, the, the phone lines light up and you, you answer people's questions. And, and that really was the stock and trade of the ministry in terms of a focal ministry outreach for almost 40 years, many years that Walter Martin did it. And then, you know, I've, I've done it over three decades myself. So uh, answering questions was essentially what my identity surrounded, it revolved around, I should say. It, it became a, what I was known for. And people always say, oh, you're the Bible Answer Man. I'd always say, no, I'm not the Bible Answer Man. I'm the host of a broadcast called the Bible Answer Man Broadcast. You know, it's so funny. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I had that in my notes because i it's the funniest thing. As I mention you and your work to friends, uh, if I, as I've done this over the years, one of the responses is, I mean, and you're, you're really well known, it's a rare person who doesn't know about this particular, the Bible Answer Man broadcast, they will say to me, oh, he's the Bible Answer Man. And, and since I've heard you socially correct, well, gently, people who do that, I, I've, learned to, I've learned to say, well, that's the name of the program, and, and he is the guy who does answer the questions, but, but, but he doesn't call himself the Bible Answer Man. Yeah, and the reason, John, is because, you know, the more you know, the more you realize how little you know in the full scope of what can be known. Isn't, and so isn't that the truth? Yeah, it's a daunting thing to be called the, not a, but the Bible answer man. But that <laughs> became my, 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 my handle. I mean, that, that's what most people recognize me as, not as the president of Christian Research Institute exactly. or the, the books, but rather 
the Bible answered that. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you, just, just hearing your story, I, you know, I flash back to late 80s, early 90s, driving along in my car and stuck on I-4 in Orlando in traffic. And I remember thinking, there's no way that guy answers the phone and and provides these answers. Now, I've, I've had the, the pleasure, the honor of being in your studio and watching this happen. And you really don't get a lot of you don't get a lot of lead time there and you're asked some really challenging questions. There's probably a pattern. You probably have a good idea of, of, of the, the pattern of, of the questions from Christians and non-Christians alike. But, but is it, is it those, it's gotta be those memorization skills plus a deep knowledge of scripture. And I talk to students all the time about the fact that it is the object of our faith, God himself, that, that we must know well to walk out, to live out this this Christian life, and I'm I'm just wondering what would you say to to the typical Christian who who says, "Hey, I'm kind of in a, a mile wide, inch deep environment." You know, I'm in a typical evangelical church, but how does a person begin to really experience growth and begin to learn the riches of of the truth that you just referenced a few minutes ago? Yeah, I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that we're involved in a treasure chest. And that treasure chest has no bottom. But most people, uh, they don't come to the faith thinking about this being a treasure chest. Rather, they think about it in punctiliar fashion, meaning I prayed a prayer and Jesus Christ is now my Savior. And I have a ticket in my hand that gets me into heaven and keeps me out of hell. And so then they live the remainder of their Christian lives as baptized secular humanists, meaning they never really grow in the richness of the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. I think that the the answer, therefore, is not to see your faith as punctiliar as being a point or reference in time as much as it is a process, mm. because we were created not only as icons of God in the image and likeness of God, but we are created to become God-like, more and more like God, in life and nature, not in the Godhead. We'll never have identity of essence when it comes to God, but we are created to progress as as human beings, not only in this life, but also in the life that is to come. So even after you die, it's not as though you have everything accomplished in terms of knowledge. Because if you think about it, John, God is ineffable, which is to say there's no end to coming to know God. Mm-hmm. We will always learn and grow and develop in our knowledge of God, albeit without error in eternity, but we will still grow in our knowledge of God. But even more than that, we will, I shouldn't say more than that, but, but, but like unto that, we will grow in our, our ability to absorb the riches of the universe that he has created. We think about this universe and we think, wow, this universe is big, but we have no real understanding of how big it truly is. We used to think that the universe 
maybe had billions of galaxies. Now we know it has trillions of galaxies with billions of stars. So we can never come to an end of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Never come to an end of exploring a recreated the universe, a universe that now groans and travail, but one day will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So my point is, is that the Christian life is a process, and we so often short-circuit the process by thinking about our faith as a point in time rather than a process that continues on throughout mm. eternity. Uh, so true. And, you know, you just described, Hank, my life and probably so many others where I grew up in an environment that I would I would characterize as part of that kind of the multiplying movements, the, you know, revivalism, church planting, even that evangelism explosion period. Uh, I remember presentations by well-intended ministries like Campus Crusade and others. And I I remember wondering as a young kid, 10, 11 years old, had, did I pray the right prayer? Did I use the right words? Did I have enough faith? How much faith was enough? And it, it was all based on this, this moment in time, and I, I did not understand the concepts that you just outlined. It was only as an adult. Um, I, I had a very similar period to yours, and I don't think you and I have ever talked about this, but I, I had a, a similar 20, 20, 30 year period where I was probably, you'd probably consider me a practical atheist as well. So I think this is something we don't talk about in the evangelical church very much, but I think a lot of the doubts, fears, and guilt that people are, that professing Christians are kind of running around with are, are, are due to this challenge that you just mentioned. I want to ask you about this. There, there's a concept of, uh, I, I want you to talk about the book in, in just a moment, but before we do that, there's this concept called Christian worldview, and we talked about it a lot. Last time I was in Charlotte, we talked about it. We talked about absolute truth and, and how we're, you had just had a guest on the week before that talked about the fact that we we're in a post-truth world, and I certainly agree with that. Sometimes we call it postmodernism, or now it's sort of post-postmodernism. And there's this notion that that um, good ministries like Summit and others, uh, Jeff Myers and a, a lot of folks, a lot of apologetics ministries kind of teach this this notion that, you know, we kind of weigh Christianity and other worldviews and Christianity wins when we examine the evidence. And what we need to teach students, young people, young Christians to do is to take off the flawed lenses that they see the world through and put on new lenses, Christian lenses that will allow you then to see the world from this Christian perspective. The Christian experience, the Christian life is so much more than that. Can you just touch on that for a moment? Yeah. The first thing I'd like to comment on is, is you're bringing up the, the, the phrase post-truth, the hyphenated word post-truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually was Oxford Dictionary's 2016 Word of the Year, and it does capture the culture's current mood and preoccupation. Uh, The idea is that objective facts have become less influential in shaping public policy. And so now what has become more influential is appeals to subjective fabrications. And those are rationalized in our culture. Uh, So, for example, Oliver Stone, the famed filmmaker, 
mm-hmm. uh, talked about truth when he was caught in a fabrication, a really big fabrication. And his rationalization was, okay, I admit it wasn't true. It was false. But I was defining evil with a capital E. So therefore, my fabrication is justified because it supports a larger truth. So in a post-truth culture, it is so important to recognize that Jesus Christ declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. So he is the way to the Father, the Father being the embodiment of truth. And that's why Jesus can tell us that truth is central to our Christian lives. It's why the Apostle Paul can tell us to put on the full armor of God, the first piece of which is the belt of truth. When that belt breaks, the covering that protects us against the world, the flesh, and the devil simply crumples to the ground and leaves us naked and vulnerable. So it's important for us as Christians to have a handle on what truth is, that it is an aspect of the nature of God himself, that truth is anything that corresponds to reality, that truth is essential to a Christian worldview, or as Alexander Zolzhenitsyn once said, that one word of truth outweighs the entire world. So we have to put a premium on truth because as Christians, we are the bearers of truth. We are the arbiters of truth. We are the leavening force in a culture that is post-truth. And the only way that that culture ultimately changes is by Christians communicating truth in the right way. Not truth because it works. That's pragmatism. Mm -hmm. Not truth because it feels right. That's subjectivism. Not truth because it's my truth. That's relativism. But truth because it is anchored in a Christian worldview that says God created the universe, Jesus Christ is God, and that the Bible is the truth. Jesus said in the high priestly prayer, John 17, he said, sanctify them to your truth, thy word is true. So I think to have a realistic worldview, uh, we have to be steeped in truth, which means to be steeped in Christ, who is the personification of truth. Which also means to know scripture and to know it uh, deeply. And that's that's really what your ministry was used by God to prompt in our lives. It prompted a much deeper study. I know there's so much more to say on that topic, but I want to go to your book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More. You talk about it in your podcast. Uh, the rest of the title is The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian Life. And for those who don't know your story in recent years, you know, you and I share some medical crises and and some some challenges there. But this is this to me is such an important book for a time such as this. Now, you you and I have discussed this post truth world, as I mentioned, that we live in today, and the importance of holding firmly to absolute truth. But I'm wondering if you just talk about the book and talk about the idea this this notion that life matters more. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, this is a really important concept to me. I mean, I, I finished this book while I was going through a four-year battle with cancer. And I decided, really, that I don't want to write any more books after this. Now, whether I hold to that in the long term or not, I really don't know. But I, I really love what I'm communicating in this book because, essentially, I'm communicating the significance of truth. I'm saying that truth matters. I'm not saying truth doesn't matter or truth is less important. I'm saying truth matters. Truth really, really matters. In fact, outside the truth kept by the whole church, personal experience is deprived of certainty. It becomes a mingling of truth and falsehood. So truth is transcendently important. But I've discovered that there's life beyond truth. That truth leads us into life. And, and, and this is, again, why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the path towards the Father who is the embodiment of truth. So truth is significant. It is the bedrock. But I say life matters more because life involves a mysterium that is to be experienced rather than explained. It's not a prohibition upon knowledge, but it is the transcending of knowledge. It's the transcending of all philosophical speculation. And I, in my book, I tell the story of Thomas Aquinas, who in 1273, I think the day was actually December 6, 1273, he had a Eucharistic experience that caused him to stop writing his Summa. You might recall that his Summa was, you know, one of the most prodigious works in the history of writing. Indeed. I mean, hard to imagine anything more significant than this Summa, because what he tried to do is he caught, tried to codify all of truth as a coherent whole. So he tried to take truths from anthropology and science and ethics and psychology and political theory, theology, and he tried to harmonize all of that under the banner of truth. And he hadn't finished it when he had this Eucharistic experience in a chapel. This Eucharistic experience so changed him, so utterly rewired his circles, he had an experience of the real presence of God, that he said to his secretary, Reginald, my brother's name is Reginald, he said, I cannot finish my work, because all I have written seems as though it is so much straw. Mm. And, and it gives you some kind of a glimpse of what that experience meant to him, not an experience that was ungrounded or unfounded, but an experience that came out of his understanding of truth. Now, fortunately, he didn't say, well, I've had this experience, and so I'm going to throw away everything I've written in the Summa, because we would have been impoverished if we didn't have that corpus of information. It's very, very significant, important, and transformational. He, he allowed what he had written to carry on to his posterity and vicariously to us, but he was transformed. And I had a similar experience. I could define truth. I could debate truth. I could defend truth, but I wasn't experiencing the life that matters more. And, and my experience over the last maybe 10 or so years encompasses this idea of a life that matters more a life that is transformational, a life that is 
formed within this repository of jewels that I talked about earlier, that there's no bottom to. And, and it is a life that is focused not on just knowing about God, but knowing Him experientially. Mm. And I think there's a lot of ways in which you can experience that. You can experience that through the Christian disciplines, through fasting, through prayer, through almsgiving. That's the triple braided cord that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. But also through other disciplines, through reading things that are really transformational, through partaking in the graces that God gives us in the church. In the church, we receive graces that are transformational, that take us from one glory to another, which is exactly what Jesus Christ talked about when he talked to to the woman at the well and said that if you drink of this water, you'll drink of water by which you will never thirst again. And of course, everybody wants that kind of living water. Jesus pointed her to that And as you get into the treasure chest of Scripture, you find your way to that wellspring of life that matters more as well. But ultimately, you find that wellspring in a healthy, well-balanced church. Because as St. Cyprian of Carthage once said, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. It is in the church that we see the graces that transform us from one glory to another by which we experience what Jesus said, life and life more abundantly, the life that matters more. Mm, And I, wow, I think of the state of the church when you say that, that makes me, makes me shudder. You know, the the one thought that I had as you were talking is this, this truth experience matter, this distinction, this is not a zero sum game, is it? It's not these concepts aren't mutually exclusive. They go, in fact, they go hand in hand. You were, you were prepared by the study of truth all these years for this change that you talked about over this this past ten year period. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a uh, there's a, a theologian that has really had a deep impact on me. His name is Vladimir Lossky, and uh, there are many things that, that that he says that have been impactful to me. One of the things, in in reference to what you just said, is he said that Christian theology is always, in the last resort, a means. It's a unity of knowledge that subserves an end which transcends all knowledge. And then he said this ultimate end is union with God, or deification. Now, there's a cultic way, or an occultic way, of speaking of deification, and there's a Christian way. Uh, speaking of deification, uh, he was speaking of deification in the sense of being a partaker of the divine nature, which means that you become more and more, as I was talking about earlier, more and more godlike, that you experience fellowship in the Holy Trinity, that you experience union with God, the very thing that we are created for. That is a Christian concept. Of deification. He also said this. He said that after the fall, human history is a long shipwreck awaiting rescue. But then he said, in concert with what we're talking about earlier, he said the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is the possibility of the shipwrecked to resume a journey whose sole goal is union with God. In other words, we were created for fellowship in the Holy Trinity. 
You know, I want to, you've been so gracious with your time and I, I want to ask you one other question. And the, and the, the reason I want to ask you this question, it, it's a theological question and it has to do with, uh, boy, 10, 15, almost 20 year inquiry on, on my part. And it's one that I think it's always going to be incomplete on this earth, but it's, it really has to do with uh, the sovereignty of God versus uh, notice that I won't make the mistake of saying man's free will, but I will say the sovereignty of God versus man making decisions, making choices, having choices. And I, I remember years ago bugging maybe the nicest man I ever met who works for you, Paul Young, and he sent me volumes of, actually he sent a couple of unpublished books on this topic. And what I, my struggle was, I was, I was under the ministry of R.C. Sproul, uh, the late R.C. Sproul, who you and I share as a mutual friend. And I just struggled with the doctrine, with some reformed doctrines, Calvinistic doctrines. And I remember on the golf course talking with you about uh, Romans 8 and 9. And I, I said, could you explain it to me? and explain this concept in words that I can understand, because I'd heard you on the radio all these years, and I, I knew you had you have such a good way of communicating, a succinct but yet deep way of, of expressing these concepts. And you, you challenged me. You said, you said, go read Romans 9 and think about the question, that, think about the audience, and think about the question that Paul is, is answering. And I, that's exactly what you said to me. And I remember where we were standing when you said it. And and I went away and I did that. I did maybe a little more study than that even. I grabbed some commentaries and and I remember seeing you a few weeks later and saying at lunch, okay, I read it and I think I understand it. And you you explained this as well as anyone I know. And I, I, I know that this audience includes people in churches that, that believe in the essentials of the faith, as you often say, but who are confused on this issue, who struggle with this issue. And you gave it so much clarity for me. I know it's off topic and kind of just want to kind of throw this in here at the end, but I'm wondering if you would just talk about that issue, maybe even in the context of Romans 8 and 9, but but just generally this notion of of God's sovereignty and salvation and otherwise, and yet uh, man's volition. Yeah, I think it's a transcendently important question in a lot of ways. Uh, in, in fact, it was one of the questions, I, I grew up in a Calvinist home, and it was one of the questions that, that plagued me as a young young person. Because if God created us in such a way that we had to respond to his love, or vicariously we couldn't respond to his love, either way, uh, the question then becomes, is God the author of evil? And if God is the author of evil, how do you distinguish God from being evil himself? So if you take the Calvinist perspective that God created people who are doomed from the womb to certain destruction, you now are placed in a very difficult circumstance. Again, philosophically, if you cash all of this out, which would take a little bit of time, but if you cash all of this out, you come up with the philosophical dilemma, is God not only the author of evil, but is God evil himself? Mm. I think that the problem is resolved when you have a robust view 
of libertarian freedom. And I think that this, I not only think, but I know that this was the position of the early church. So when you look at passages like Romans 8 and 9, you can try to grapple with it on your own, or you can grapple it looking at it with a lens that you have been given and that you see that passage through that particular lens. But if you took a different pair of eyeglasses, put them on you, you'd see that passage very differently. So there are two lenses that you can read that, that passage through. I think the one lens is untenable, the other is tenable and consistent with the nature of God. The problem that you run into is that we're trying to figure these things out in the 21st century or the 20th century or the 16th century, but church history goes all the way back to the apostles and then the apostolic fathers and then the fathers of the church, the great apologists, the pre- and post-Nicene fathers, and they give us a way, a lens by which we can read the passage rightly. And I think this has been the greatest liberation for me. I don't read the passage bringing all my expertise to it. I read the passage bringing the expertise of the church to it, Mm. which means the consensus of the fathers. What was the consensus of the fathers? How did they read this passage? Now, tradition is not another horse to ride, Tradition, holy tradition as it's called, is actually a way of rightly understanding what God has given us. So God not only gives us the Bible, but he also gives us a right way of understanding the Bible. And I think what's been transcendently important for me is to go back and grapple with the writings of the early church fathers. What was believed always, everywhere? and by all, as opposed to what is being communicated in the 16th century, as though there were no centuries of history that preceded it. Now, I'd say one other thing in this regard. Uh, I think it's very significant to recognize that in reading Scripture, we oftentimes find ourselves in what I call the land of antinomy, meaning the land of tension. Because on the one hand, you see passages that so clearly point to the sovereignty of God. On the other hand, we see passages that clearly point to human choice, that our choices really make a difference. I think the, the real danger is the strident poles, either the pole of denying God's sovereignty or the pole of denying human libertarian freedom. The one pole, the pole of denying God's, God's gracious gift of, of free will, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is necessary for love. That's you know, right. If we can't choose, then love is rendered meaningless. But I think the pole that negates that is what Calvin said. You know, he said famously that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man, and within the ruin of his posterity, but he also at his own pleasure arranged it. He also said that all are not created 
on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of those ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or death. And he expounded on that by saying that God arranges all things by his sovereign counsel in such a way that individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the pull that negates not only the history of the church's teachings from the very beginning, but also the pull that leads us to God being the author of evil and the philosophical question of whether if God is the author of evil, God might be evil himself. And this was the great dilemma that I faced early on in my life because it was a question that was unanswered by my teachers, but it is a question that is well answered by the apostolic fathers from Ignatius of Antioch to Polycarp and on through the ages. Mm, there, you know, there's so much to say there, and I, I remember this about your background now that I think about it, that you you talked to me about that when I asked you these these questions, and there there's so much more to say. I mean, you're, I was thinking about eisegesis and exegesis as you were talking. You know, we we tend to, if we take one side of that argument, we tend to read into scripture that view. And as you just said, I I, I think we can embrace the tension. We can answer the question: Is is God sovereign, or does man get to make choices? Does man have volition? And the, the answer can be yes. And I, I often, and it's easy for me to do because I'm, you know, a finance guy by training and I'm a, 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 a sort of a, I hack away at theology, but it's helpful for me to just conclude with a matter like this, that I know the character, I, I can answer the question, who is God? Who is man? How does God relate to man? I can answer those questions reasonably well and understand that other scripture outside of some specifically difficult, challenging sections informs me on God's character, and I can rely on his character, particularly with the doctrine that you, that you mentioned, the doctrine of, of damnation or, or reprobation is kind of the way the Calvinist would say it. It is impossible, I believe, for a holy, loving, righteous God to create people who are damned from birth, in short. Yeah, I think it's uh, absolutely true. And I think what I told you about Romans 8 and 9 is that if you read the end of that passage, you see the takeaway. And the takeaway is that God is either the capstone of our life or he's the capstone over which we stumble. And that's how he ends that passage. Mm -hmm. Again, I think you come to a passage and you have to ask the question, what is the question that Paul is actually addressing here? And that's I think right. once that's solidified in your mind, that's helpful. Uh, very helpful. And, and you know, I went back and studied the composition of the Roman Church. I didn't realize that there was, there was a minority, uh, maybe 35-40%, we don't quite know, of, of Jewish members of that church. And they, the, the whole uh, reference to the nation of Israel and potter and clay from the Old Testament— those were all important uh, lessons for me to learn. I had heard those taught in perhaps an unhelpful way. Well, Hank, I have well, taken— I, go, go right quickly, ahead. There, John, I mean, I think this is a really important point. What, what you're pointing out is a principle that most people listening in would do well to pick up on. 
And that is that if you, you can read virtually the Old Testament without ever reading the Old Testament by reading the New Testament, because the, mm. the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, and Paul does that prolifically. So he if does. you go a passage like uh, Romans chapter 8 and 9, you can actually go back to what passage is Paul quoting. And when you go back to the passage in the Old Testament, you will find that there's a, a more full explanation of what Paul is truncating in, 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 in the book of Romans. And that will give you the context, and that will preclude the notion of hard determinism. That's exactly right. And, and, and you know, even the doctrine of knowing that Romans is all about this letter, this epistle to the—knowing when he wrote it, knowing why he wrote it, knowing he hadn't visited there yet, knowing that that church was probably not started by strong apostolic influence other than other believers who migrated there. When you know some of those— historical facts that are well-documented in literature outside of the Bible, you, you know those things, and it's easier to understand why why Paul would be co- so concerned about communicating clearly this doctrine of justification by faith. I often think about this, Hank, and you 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 prompted all of this years ago in me, but I, but I even think about this. Imagine, imagine this. Even in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he talks about living sacrifice, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, the only thing that church would have been aware of is dead sacrifices, right, to that point. That, that metaphor is so powerful. But think, think about this. The Jewish people had been exiled. They had just returned. The Gentiles in Rome were worshiping uh, false gods. And so, actually, the church at Rome, the readers of this letter— would have been de facto atheists of the day, wouldn't they? They were not mainstream. They were countercultural. That's fascinating to me. And then at least, so, so that's the backdrop. That's the presupposition these people come to this letter with. And then, then he talks about justification by faith, which would have really been troubling to them because they are afflicted with the same condition we all have, this sense of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness through, in the case of Gentiles, idol worship, in the case of the Jewish people, this whole hanging on to the law. Yeah, and, and again, just to to highlight the point that you were making earlier, you mentioned the phrase potter and clay. Uh, just for your audience, if they go back and, and read that portion, which is in Romans chapter 9, then you can cross-reference. Most Bibles give you the, the ability to do that very easily. They'll have a little note. Where, you, where, where Paul's quoting from. So you can go to a passage like, uh, <clears throat> I think it's Jeremiah uh, 18. That's right. And Isaiah 29. And then you can read the fuller context. So that, that's a really helpful thing in terms of just practical advice for people listening in. Say, well, you know, I don't know if I agree with what John said or what Hank said. I want to check it out for myself. And I think that's the really healthy place for people who really are concerned with truth. They need to test all things and then hold fast that which is good, because otherwise, truth becomes a popularity contest, right? Where 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 people say, "Hank said this, John said this, I believe this," mm-hmm. but rather, I think much better that people say, "You know, I heard Hank say this or John say this. Uh, let me go back and see if what they're saying actually corresponds to reality, because that that that's what truth is. Truth is that which corresponds to reality." Truth is that which corresponds to realistic worldview. So you go back and you check out, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. 
you just described what I did after every round of golf we played. And, <laughs> and, and by the way, people are far less likely to rely on something I say here than, than you. <laughs> but I know exactly what you mean. Uh, check, check. You, you said something to me about this concept. Uh, I'm ne- I'll never forget it. You said, and, and it's one of those things where you just did this summation, and I think it's very powerful. You said, I believe God is sovereign enough to give us choices, to allow us to make choices that still stay within his sovereignty. And, and yeah, I read, it enhances probably of God. That's right. Yep. Well, Hank, thank you. I can't thank you enough for, for being here. This, this wow, we've been uh, talking now for quite some time. You've been so gracious with your time. I know you're busy and you've been traveling. Folks, it is good to be with you. Please, again, like, share, review, and subscribe to the Relentless Truth Podcast. And for more about our work, go to johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at johnwarrenmedia.com on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.